At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Best in Show, the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and KV industry. My name is Alan Mesick. I'm from California, and I'm joined each and every week by the quick-witted and intuitive Bryony Smith from Kansas. Bryony, how's it going in your part of the world? It's going all right, although it's a little bit later at night. Um, I don't know if I'm as quick-witted as I would be, you know, kind of mid-evening, but we'll, oh, we'll do the best so we can. <laughs> Whatever. You are sharp any time of day, and I know you're a night person <laughs> like me, too. So I know I, I wait. I, I come alive this time of night, and I know you do as well. Yes, yes. So uh, have you been judging much? Um, I have. Fairs are continuing to roll on. I'm actually getting ready this weekend to head back up to Nebraska for their state fair. Um, it's one I've not visited before, and I was reading up a little bit about it because I'm a nerd and I was raised on VH1 pop-up video, and that's basically how I go through life. Um, I'm raising my hand here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I found out that it has not been in... Um, the fairgrounds where it's at for very long at all. It's a fair that has moved around over the years. You know, a lot of the, our state fairs have, you know, a fairgrounds like, you know, Hutchins of Kansas, Sedalia, Missouri, Des Moines, Iowa. The fair has been for a hundred years or more. Um, but this one has actually moved around a bit and it's not been at this location in Grand Island for very long. So I'm actually looking forward to seeing a kind of a new fairground setup. That's way cool. And that's a good point because Fairs do tend to tend to, you know, stay in that mecca for over a hundred years. And some of these state fairs, they're not located even near their state capitals. They're you know off in the country, and that's where it began. And that's where they that's where they remained. Um, with the Nebraska State Fair, they actually have a brand new facility in Grand Island. Um, yeah, it's only been there for a few years. It had kind of bounced back and forth um, from around the Omaha to Lincoln area over the years. Um, so they just decided at one point to move it to Grand Island permanently. Um, Grand Island's not a really big city. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that and seeing, you know, maybe what this facility has brought as far as economic development and, you know, interesting places to eat and things to do in town. Yeah, no kidding. And with Nebraska being a, a big ag capital, uh, there in the Midwest, um, it'll be interesting to see some of the educational aspects that they've, you know, added to their fairgrounds. Like, you know, the Iowa State Fair, they're, they're so known for their education and they've got that, that birthing center that is just like out of this world. Um, I am, uh, anxious to hear what you find there because I bet they've added a lot of things that, you know, are more contemporary in ways of reaching their audience, which may not be all ag based and to get them hooked on, on ag and learning more about it. 
Yeah, um, as well as, you know, very modern facilities for all of the ag exhibits, the animals, things like that. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Grand Island, I'm, we've talked about Nebraska before as being like one of those states like Kansas where you drive through forever and ever. Grand Island, that's sort of centrally located, right? Um, yeah, it is. Um, it's on the, the southern part of the state. But yeah, from east to west, it's fairly central. Um, I'm going to go shoot up 135.81. And this time I'll make a left turn instead of a right turn <laughs> to Lincoln. <laughs> but is Grand Island the the city that you go through on Interstate 80, which has that like overpass and there's like a shopping mall or some kind of like rest area? You know, I'm not sure. It could be that or it could be Carney, but I like I know there's there's that overpass and that shopping mall and rest area. It's not like okay, a so you, you don't, I'm, I'm not making this up. Okay, good. All right. I'm pretty sure it's in Grand Island, but anyway, it doesn't sound like you take too much of the 80s, so you may not you may not get to experience it, but I did that once actually on the way back from Reno. Um, I was not the first to leave the showroom, which was nice. I got reports back from people in um, Kansas that had already headed out. And so it, that's kind of nice. That's why I don't like to head out first. Um, so I got a report back. Ah, oh, well, so-and-so says there's snow on 70. So we're all, we're all taking 80 through, um, which normally I'd gone you know, to 80, then drop down through Denver and come back over 70. Um, so I took 80 through too. And yeah, Nebraska takes just about as long as Western Kansas. Oh man, I, it's longer because it is eight. I take eighty, and it's front to back. Like there's no going out of Nebraska. You go from the Wyoming border, uh, and then what do you hit? You hit Illinois? No, what's? I feel really stupid. What, you hit Nebraska. Nebraska. No, yeah. I know. But after Nebraska, then you hit Iowa. Iowa, yeah. On, on the eighty, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Iowa is like a breeze because it's like half the size, <laughs> even though even though it's still quite bigger than a lot of other states. Like for example, New England, but. Gosh, you're just happy to reach that Iowa border. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, Nebraska's got that little like hook thing, so it's it's longer than it looks. It's a little bit longer than Kansas, I think, actually. But it is so long. I mean, you know, like let's we've got convention coming up. Let's talk about our favorite routes. If you're gonna if you're gonna drive west or east, um, what's your favorite freeway to make a really long trek on? Um, so west, I can't really stay on one. Um, I have gone out to going out to San Diego. There are parts of that drive I love and parts of that drive I hate. Actually, from not too far um, west of Wichita, clear to Tucumcari, New Mexico, I'm mostly <laughs> on two lane highways. There's some areas where it's split four lane. I'm mostly on two lane, and that's a good chunk of the drive. After that, I hit 40. I go to Flagstaff. Um, which that's normally where I stay when I'm going out to Del Mar. I do um, Wichita to Flagstaff in a day, which is like a thousand miles. It's crazy because um, there's a back and forth actually to get my rabbits. Um, so I stay there and I actually like getting up early that next morning because Flagstaff is, it's not like desert. It's up in the mountains. It's chilly. It's cold. I actually usually bring the rabbits in because it's too cold for them to stay outside. So it's, you know, alpine, chilly, you're up in the forest. And then as the sun rises, you drive down into the Phoenix area and then across through Yuma and the desert skirt, the Mexican border. I love that drive. That's, that's really pretty and picturesque. And it was something that I'd never seen. And I like that little town with that little funky space motel. I want to go there and stay there one of these days. That would be Gila Bend. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's yeah. So that, because that's where like you can get on the eight there from, I think it's the 65 if you're going to come down from the 10, which is probably what you do if you're coming uh -huh. down. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do that route a lot. Like I, it's the Southwest, but growing up in the East coast, it's like you, when I first saw it, I was like, Whoa, this place is, is this like planet Mars? Because it's just so different 
uh, geographically than about anywhere else in the United States. Oh, yeah. And then coming through the mountains, um, kind of as you cross into California, um, as you get past Yuma, which is, by the way, my first in and out stop is in Yuma. Um, (laughs) Then you go through the mountains and it like it's hot there. And every mile there's a pullout station with a hose to like hose your engine off if you overheat. I'd never seen anything like that before. Welcome to the furnace, the Southwest. (laughs) Um, And, you know, coming from because we are way out west, we have to travel all the time, pretty much, unless the convention is here. And we have several routes that we could take to go east. You know, we could take the 10, which is what you were just talking about, or the 8, which gets you into Arizona. And then, well, the 10 keeps going, you know, across country nearly through Texas and and even farther through uh, Louisiana, Arkansas. Um, but then we're given the option, you know, if it's a hot time of year, to take a northern route. So we can take the 40, which goes up through Flagstaff, as you just mentioned, and it's high elevation uh, there in northern Arizona, which if, if you've never been to Arizona, you don't think about cold in Arizona, but it actually snows in northern Arizona, around the Grand Canyon and Flagstaff. And it, like you do, it's a great place to stop because it is cooler and it may be so cold, you've got to take your rabbits into the into the hotel. Um, and then as we go farther north, we can take 70, which, you know, cuts up through like, uh, Colorado and then, you know, onto your part of the country, or we can take the 80, which I think is like the least popular amongst, uh, Western rabbit and KV travelers because <laughs> it's so boring through Nevada, you know, and it's not a straight shot through Nevada. It makes this weird loop, uh, farther north and you go through towns like, um, Winnemucca and, um, What's that? Battle the Mountain. other like two that are on that whole stretch yeah, of eighty I, I, through the, the really state. there are like three towns across the entire state of Nevada. One of which was Battle Mountain. I think one year was like rated the number one worst city to live in in the United States. Um, and if <laughs> no you kidding, through Battle Mountain, you will know why. Uh, and then you hit Wendover, which is on the the border of Utah and Nevada, and they have a Starbucks there. And it's at a it's at a casino, of course. It's on the Nevada side, but you know if you're a Starbucks fiend like me, you're like, oh my god, thank God, because there's nothing prior to that. No. Elko, Nevada, now has a Starbucks. I have to say, I've been there too. But regardless, oh. it's a long stretch from Elko to Wendover. <laughs> so. See, I I enjoyed that drive out to Reno. Like, I enjoyed parts. Of, <laughs> there's parts <laughs> of it that are interminable. The Kansas part, the Colorado part. The Wyoming part wasn't too bad. I did that all in the dark. I did um, Wichita to Salt Lake my first day. And I love Salt Lake City. I um, love have been it out well. there. Yes, um, for conferences several times. So I, I, you know, I have my little restaurants I like. I have a lot of shopping that I like to do on the way. Um, so that, I look for shops. I don't look for Starbucks quite as much. Um, <laughs> but they have an in and out too. So, but I loved that drive out through the Bonneville Salt Flats. That was cool. Such a cool drive. Now after that, it got pretty bad again. But <laughs> it does, it does. But yeah, those those salt flats are crazy. Last last time I drove through, I think it was maybe last summer. Somebody was actually having a wedding on the Great Salt Flats. It was actually kind of cool to look at. I was like, what is that? A bride out there and her groom, and you know the contrast against the white salt and just hundreds of miles of white all around. It was kind of cool. It looked like it looked like snow. Yeah. <laughs> so going anyway. east, um, I've actually done some drives to like Tennessee and Georgia over the past year or so. Um, and what I like to do, again, the whole shopping thing, I take a little detour. I go down through Fayetteville, Arkansas, where I used to live. I stop at my favorite vintage boutique. <laughs> and then I drop down and take 40 across um, to Tennessee. Um, and then, you know, usually drop down and go through Chattanooga and that area. Um but yeah, that's that's my fun drive. And I like that. It's pretty, it's hilly. It's not, you know, something I see all the time with hills and things of that mm-hmm. nature. <laughs> For sure. And it's more diverse. It's it's there's 
a change of scenery at least every um, every six hours instead of every 18 hours, like if you're coming from the West. Exactly, yes. Well, we uh, we know that our listeners are getting anxious about convention coming up in Louisville, and they will be taking some of those drives uh, on their pathways and their, their, their Hajj to the Mecca Louisville convention coming up in October, and I know we're both excited about that one. Yes, it's what, just about 60 days now? Gosh, I can't believe it. Yeah, two months and, and ticking. So I can't yes. wait to see everyone there in Louisville. <laughs> so start making those plans. Entry portal, I believe, is going to be opening around Labor Day. I was talking to some people behind the scenes recently about that. So people will be able to, our exhibitors will be able to enter those rabbits and caveys. And so start start planning it out now and plotting it out. It's been a long time since we've been together. And uh, Louisville is going to be that big family reunion after two years. And stay tuned to us, too, because we're going to be doing some episodes that focus a bit on convention prep. So we want you all to be um, ready to go, whether this is your first convention or whether you've been, but you're a little bit rusty after the break because a few things have happened since Reno. Um, we're going to give you some advice. Um, we're going to actually crowdsource some advice. So watch our rabbitry page for that, as well as giving you some updates from the convention hosts. And I got to say, I'm totally rusty. So I'm going to be listening to our guests and taking some notes too, because it's all seeming a little bit foreign to me right now. Even when I go back to the judging table, I'm like, uh, wait, how do you do this again? So yeah, we'll definitely keep everyone up to date with some convention preps and some great speakers on our podcast and the rabbitry page to keep you up to date. Uh, speaking of the rabbitry page, that will continue to serve as our hub on Facebook. So like, follow, and share the rabbitry on Facebook. And you can find links to our current and past episodes of the Best in Show podcast. So if you happen to be just finding us, you can find links in chronological order uh, with pictures of our guests and links to whichever platform you may listen to Best in Show podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Audible, Amazon, Google Play, we're on all of them. And uh, just also a reminder, we'd love to hear your comments. And uh, you can do that on any platform that you listen to Best in Show. We love five-star ratings. And if you drop a comment, that really helps us to broaden our horizons and broaden our, our reach when it comes to finding other other potential viewers, whether they're raising rabbits and cavies now, or maybe they are getting interested in rabbits and cavies on the show side of things. So please drop us those comments, like us, uh, follow us, and share us. We do appreciate those. And we also welcome your comments through our email address. And whether you want to comment uh, for us to read, later on on a podcast episode, or maybe you've got some insight to our podcast that you'd like to share, whether it's historical or contemporary, or maybe you've got a great idea and a speaker in mind, do send us an email. Our email is podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. And that link is on every single one of our links uh, on the rabbitry page as well. So we're easy to find and easy to contact. And of course, Brian and I are out and about at rabbit shows as well. So you can always stop us in person. All right, so I think we're going to move on to our historical segment uh, for this episode, and we're going to dedicate it to the year 2009. Um, and you'll find out a little bit later why we did 2009 when we get to our special guest. So, Bryony, what was happening in the ARBA in 2009? Well, I pulled out the January-February edition of the Domestic Rabbits in 2009, and it was honoring um, the late and great Oren Reynolds, who had recently passed away. Um, Oren lived to be 102. He was very active throughout his life. Um, and there are some great articles about this. Um, if if you weren't a member at the time and, you know, maybe you're kind of collecting some old episodes, truly, this would be one I would seek out. There's a lot of ARBA history in here. And, you know, maybe we can at some point publish some of this in another format. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Oren Reynolds from these articles. Um, he was born in Illinois in 1906 
When he was very young, he traveled by covered wagon with his parents and sister to Big Sandy, Montana, in pursuit of land under the newly expanded Federal Homestead Act. They established a small farm 17 miles from the nearest neighbor. They were in such a remote wilderness, it was necessary to wear boots for fear of rattlesnakes. Their home was constructed of tongue and groove boards with layers of brown paper and wood shingles on the roof. It was snug and warm in the winter. Oren's mother ordered carpet from Sears, Roebuck, and Company, which came in 24-inch strips that had to be sewn together. They would place the carpet over a layer of straw on the floor, and each fall she'd take the strips apart, wash and dry the carpet, re-sew the strips, and place them over a fresh layer of straw. They lived in Montana for a few years and then eventually returned to Illinois. But it's just, it's crazy to think about, you know, someone that, that many of us in the hobby met and knew, you know, grew up traveling in a covered wagon. Um, it's kind of crazy. And it's a, really a testament to all of the change that occurred during his lifetime and, you know, change that he readily kept up with. He was so uh, contemporary and and what, wherever he was in this industry, we've heard his timeline, you know, as you just portrayed, but we've heard his timeline through so many of our guests. And as you said, he transcended time and he kept up to date with, with technology, which a lot of people struggle with as they get older. He was, he, he was an icon and, and, and rightfully so. Yeah, with technology and, and even with innovations in the industry, which was is really incredible. Um, so before World War II, um, which he served in, he had New Zealand Reds. When he returned home after the war, he got into champagnes. It says he started with a buck and two does, later adding two more bucks to his small herd. After that, he never went outside his line in all his years of showing champagnes, which is pretty incredible. He was a secretary treasurer and newsletter editor for the Champagne Club for 25 years. Um he was known for having rabbits with the best fur in condition. He won more normal colored fur classes at convention than anyone in history. Um, he also, of course, served as the president of the ARBA. Um, he was an advisor to all of the nine presidents that came after him. Um, and he was, for a long time, the editor of the Domestic Rabbits and served as editor emeritus afterwards. Um, in 1977, there was another cover of the DR by then-editor Bob Bennett paying tribute to him. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1984. Um, he outlived both his wife and his son, but, uh, you know, again, continued to be active through his life. Um, he was there to open the Hall of Fame library in 2002, which was dedicated to him. There's a series of pictures of him um, it says, what is life like after 100? There's one picture of him sitting on some bags of feed saying he was proud of his own feed formula, which he sold for 30 years. At 100 years young, he still sells as much as three tons per month from his home garage, lifting 50-pound bags. Uh, he maintained a tidy vegetable garden at 100. And um, there's a photo of him in 2008. It said, it seems impossible that someone looked and acted as young as Oren did. The spry centennialist was quick to offer his driver's license as proof of his 102 years. And he actually, I think it was my mom, he told a story to at one of the conventions in Wichita um, about going and buying a car, a, a new car, when he was um, very old and telling the salesman that, yes, I want to buy a new car. I need to have a car to drive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's so much more that could be said about Oren. Um, but I, what I think is really interesting is just to reflect on, again, you know, he was with the ARBA almost from the very beginning, you know, and all the changes that he looked over and how he 
constantly encourage the growth of this hobby, the use of technology, the improvement of the association. And that's something I think that that most people really, you know, have a little bit of a hard time with. Change is hard for a lot of people. Um, but I think, you know, we'd all be well served to think about Oren's example and be willing to embrace the new. Um, there were also the reports of the youth winners in this article or in this edition. And it talked a little bit about how the whole idea of the youth program was Oren's and look what came of that. Um, so yeah, a lot to be learned from his life. And again, if, if you're a kind of a collector or historian, I would definitely seek out this issue if you don't have it already. That's so cool. And that was from the 2009 domestic rabbits. And what month was that? January, February, 2009. So it was the first episode or first, um, first issue of the 2009 domestic rabbits magazine. Very cool. Yes, it was. All right. Well, I've got some world events to share from 2009, and uh, you'll love this one. In May, the space shuttle Atlantis uh, launched to refurbish the Hubble telescope. And I know you're a you're a space geek, so <laughs> I figured you'd like that one. Uh, on June 11th, the outbreak of the H1N1 influenza strain, commonly also referred to as swine flu, is deemed a world global pandemic. June 25th, pop singer Michael Jackson died at 50, and millions around the world gathered to mourn the king of pop's death. I remember that. Do you remember that that moment when you found out that he died? I did. I was on my way home from work, and my best friend texted me, and I'm like, what? And then I remember I traveled to a rabbit show that weekend up in Maine. I had three flights, and at every airport, that's all that was on any TV was Michael Jackson. It was crazy. I think Whitney Houston died in June of a, of a, of a different year. But uh, both times I was working at the Alameda County Fair, so I was in like my hotel room, and I just remember those two summers that was all over the, all over the the TV were the death of those two uh, icons. Way, way, way too young. Um, July seventeenth of two thousand nine, there were uh, two bombs actually that exploded separately at the JW, JW Marriott and Ritz Carlton hotels in Jakarta, Indonesia. Uh, nine people were killed, including the two suicide bombers. And that was really before the ARBA um, kind of broke into Southeast Asia. We didn't travel to Indonesia until 2012 for the first ARBA shows. But um, I don't recall going there for the first time remembering this event. But now I'm looking at it going, wow, that was just three years prior to our first ARBA visit to Jakarta, where we hosted the very first show. Uh, in December of... 2009 avatar released in theaters and it broke tons of box office records including becoming the highest grossing movie at that time uh the top songs from 2009 any guesses brianie oh gosh artists? um no i'm actually kind of drawing a blank on that i'm trying to think about like what i was listening to on the way to that san diego trip but <laughs> yeah that was san diego convention year yeah <laughs> no I'm, I'm actually totally drawing a blank well it's interesting that uh, four of the top five songs in 2009 came from just two artists. Uh, number one was Boom Boom Pow by the Black Eyed Peas. Number two, Poker Face by Lady Gaga. Number three, Just Dance by Lady Gaga. Number four, I Got a Feeling, the Black Eyed Peas. And number five, Love Story, Taylor Swift. And I'll tell you what, to this day, I still cannot get into Taylor Swift. How about you? Um, You know, it's one of those like... If I had a kid, I would rather than me listen to Taylor Swift than a bunch of anything else. <laughs> it's very catchy. Um, but me, I very much prefer Lady Gaga. I like Lady Gaga. I didn't know that. Okay. We can listen. If we travel, we'll listen to podcasts and Lady Gaga. We'll leave the ballads and the opera out. And and the, is it hip hop that you love so much? 
Not really, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, just kidding, just kidding. No ballads and preferably pretty light on the 80s music. Uh, That's going to be tough. All right, Lady Gaga podcast it is. All right, the top five um, movies from 2009. Number one was The Blind Side. Number two, I hadn't thought about this movie in a long time, and my vivid memory of it was, I love the movie, but uh, that it actually beat Avatar for the oscar that uh, that next year and that was the hurt locker um which portrayed events in the middle east with um with was going on and 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 war remember that yeah i do vaguely um but it was it was shocking because it beat avatar which was a massive hit uh you know premiering in 2009 number three uh for top movies in 09 star trek number four taken and number five still a favorite the hangover <laughs> it's a classic it will always be a classic Okay, we are going to roll into our interview for this episode, and uh, we welcome Johnny Hausner from Pennsylvania. We're very excited this episode 23 of our Best in Show podcast to welcome Johnny Hausner from Pennsylvania. He's been active in the ARBA for over 21 years. He's raised Rex and Minirex, most notably. He was a star in the Rabbit Fever movie, which premiered in 2009 at the Heartland Film Festival. In 2005, Johnny earned his ARBA Registrar's License. In 2010, his ARBA Judge License. And he is, of course, ARBA Judge number 887. In 2013, he was voted to judge Youth Best in Show at the Harrisburg Convention, a location that was is near and dear to his heart in his home state. He is serving or has served as the 2013 ARBA Convention Coordinator of Events, former ARBA Club Liaison Committee Chair, former President of the Mason-Dixon Rex Club, and he is our current ARBA District 9 Director. He's beginning his sixth year teaching sixth grade English. Let's welcome Johnny Hausner to the podcast. Hi, thank you, Alan. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's kind of weird sitting and listening to a list of your accomplishments here. (laughs) (laughs) You're a modest guy, and you've certainly done a lot and and been dedicated since the early days. Um, Let's talk about that. You've been doing this for over 20 years now. how did you find rabbits and who were some of the influential faces and voices in the ARBA that, that got you hooked so much so to, to be a, a lifelong devotee as you are now? <laughs> right. So um, I guess it goes back to how a lot of people got started in 4-H. I, I joined 4-H as early as I could and um, was actually showing dairy cows, um, some of my neighbor's dairy cows. And I was only, I think, eight, and they were way too big for me. So I was trying to save up money to buy um, a little Dutch from uh, a 4-H's dough and litter. And my mom's like, no, you know, if we're going to do it, let's do it the right way. So we went to an ARBA show, and I met two of my um, biggest mentors, Ben Hagen and Wayne Bechtel. Um, and Ben helped me get started in Rex, and a couple months later, I went to a show, uh, Frida Krause, legendary mini Rex, um, and judge. And she uh, she judged my rabbits, and they were both disqualified. <laughs> and for whatever reason, I stuck with it, and I was hooked. What a way to start. <laughs> I got to say that these, these, Dutch keep re- these Dutch keep recurring with so many of our, our podcast guests. It seems like Dutch were, were a gateway for a lot of people when it comes to rabbits. Right. What variety of Dutch was it? Um, it was it was actually a Rex. Maybe I told the story wrong, but no, it was actually a Rex. <laughs> I wanted the Dutch uh, from the fair, and I ended up buying a Rex from Ben Hagen, and 
uh, Frida disqualified them, um, but they were nice wrecks and went back to Mr. Hagen, as I called him at the time, and uh, he helped me get started or helped me breed the dough, and, and then it kind of got started from there. Well, you didn't divert too far from your that those original uh, rabbits with Rex. No, because, uh, I love Rex. Yeah, Rex and Mini Rex. The fur, that's where it's at. Yeah, I was going to say, what, what draws you to Rex? I'm sure it's not unlike a lot of people that raise them, but what is it about Rex and Mini Rex that you love so much? <laughs> uh, really, it's the fur and the contrast of, of the color that that short fur makes. I, I love black and broken black. Um, I had red Rex when I was youth, but I don't know. I've, I've just always loved the fur, and that's just always been my breed. And um, if I could give advice to someone, I, I always tell people to, you know, find a focus and stick with it. And I think that's uh, some advice I give people to try to be successful. It's great advice. And it's, it's advice that we hear over and over from from our veteran guests like you on this podcast is, you know, stick to it. You know, don't give up fast. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I started with two rabbits that were disqualified. And um, and you asked me about some of my, my other mentors and and just other people in the area as I was growing up, um, you know, Eric Stort lives really close to me. The Bell family of Ruthann and Brian, uh, Jay Harais, just other other people who took time to educate. Um, they took time to really explain things to kids. Um, as I was growing up, they helped me get started in the royalty contest. And, you know, that's just three or four names. But there, there's so many people. Our Pennsylvania group here is really strong. And really devoted to helping kids and um, educating. That Pennsylvania group is a powerhouse, uh, no doubt. And the people you mentioned, you know, you say there are only four, four or five, whatever, but those are, those are some big and very influential names over time. And, and they have touched and, and embraced a lot of people beyond even their own kids. Um, that, that group, you, you couldn't have grown up under a better, um, more, more loving and, and supportive, enthusiastic group than, than that Pennsylvania crew. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's talk about that royalty pathway, by the way, because we are dedicating both Brian and I a lot of um, our podcast time this summer to uh, royalty because we've got the convention coming up in Louisville and kids are gearing up across the country to take part in those events. Uh, you tried it. Um, was it was it Airbnb King or were, did you uh, try it other contests as well? And dating back to when? Well, I started um, a little later. Yeah, I think I started closer towards the the king age and i ran for state royalty became our pennsylvania state uh king and then that's kind of what rabbit fever was about is kind of my journey from taking you know pennsylvania rabbit king to the national convention and running um there and i didn't i didn't earn the king title so spoiler alert i didn't win in the end but uh i did participate in two conventions rhode islands and indianapolis's um in their royalty. So and that was back in, yeah. that was back in 2004 and 2005. Yeah, that would be right. And so that was around the time that rabbit fever was filmed, correct? Yes. Yeah. So rabbit fever would have been filmed. Yeah. Right around that time. We didn't see the premiere until 2009, but this was a, a project with Amy do the, the producer that was long standing. I mean, for many years, right? That's right. Yeah. What was it like to to see the the final result of Rabbit Fever? And it was like five years after you had <laughs> well, you were in college, right? And it still haunts me to this day. So, <laughs> um, I like you said, I was in college, about ready to graduate college by the time it premiered. And Amy went to you know different outlets trying to sell the documentary, and um, eventually, then just kind of I believe she self published it, and she did a great job. There was a you know, like you said, it was at the Heartland Film Festival. Um, but it, it is always weird seeing yourself. And like you said, I teach sixth grade. And one of the 
favorite things, one of the first things kids like to do at the beginning of the school year is Google their teachers' names. <laughs> the, the first thing that pops up is rabbit fever. And, you know, I, we always talk about rabbits and um, I'm proud of it. I, I think it, it really promoted the hobby in a positive way. It, it showed the power of our, our youth program, uh, which is, uh, you know, one of the fundamentals of our association is really helping kids and, and um, scholarships and things like that. It does. It did, did a great amount of work. And it's, I mean, the video is over 10 years old now, actually, more like well, 15 years old, but it's still when we all talk about it and we're all, even if we weren't part of it, we're all very proud of it because it, it does exactly <laughs> what you it, said. Oh, come on. That's got to come out at like Christmas at, at the Hausner family, right? You've got to pull out oh, every once in a while <laughs> to see those blue eyes. Yeah. And the, and the red racks. Um, so you, you know, you, you went through college and you, took a little break from rabbits, but you continued to judge through college, correct? Uh, that's correct. I, I always had rabbits. Um, I was fortunate. I was one of the fortunate kids who my dad said, I'll feed a few. And and he always, you know, kept a few of my, my favorite wrecks uh, through college. And eventually around that age, I kind of started transitioning to mini wrecks because they were smaller, a little more competitive. Um, and I really enjoyed the group of mini wrecks breeders in Pennsylvania at the time. So um, it was around the time I kind of transitioned from Rex to mini Rex, and I, I owe my dad a lot of thanks for, for feeding those rabbits for four years and uh, letting me see them on the weekends. No kidding. Another incentive to get through your college years in four years, da- dad's uh, taken away. Uh, what yep. advice would you give to um, other students that are maybe at that transition of high school to, to college that, that do want to stay in rabbits, but maybe they're going to live in a dorm, I mean, and, or maybe they don't have a parent that can take care of them. Do you have any advice for those kind of kids? Uh, you know, that's a good question because not everyone's going to be as fortunate as I am to, to have a dad that says, I'll feed a few. Um, and it was always told to me, and I would I would say this to anyone, um, is that the rabbits will always be here. And I don't know if you've heard that, but, you know, our association is very strong. Um, we have a lot of dedicated breeders, and you can always get back in, but things that you can't get back are your college years, your youth, you know learning and, and living in that environment. So I would say if, if the opportunity to, um, you know, to stay in rabbits during your collegiate years isn't there, then don't, don't stop, you know, maybe step back, still attend shows. You could still do things like work for your registrar license, work for your judge's license. Um, don't stop learning, uh, you know, stay connected to breeders, but you can, you can get out of actively breeding for a few years. And we've seen this with some of the best breeders. They take a few years break and then they, they come back and sometimes they're stronger than ever. I think that's great advice. So now you are back, you're raising rabbits again, and you're dedicated more than, more than ever. Uh, you are the ARBA district nine director, as I said earlier, what inspired you to run for that position? Because it's a big one in a right, very, so, very powerful district. Yeah. Um, like, like I said, some of the, some of my good friends were, um, previous directors, Eric, Ruthann, Jay, um, and I, I'm someone I like to get back. I like to help. Um, I like to think of ideas. So I just think, I don't know if it was a natural progression, but being in that friends group, I, I had great mentors and people who said, you know, I did this, this is how I did it. And I just kind of learned, especially as Ruth Ann went through um, some of her challenges and obstacles. And, and I said, I want to do it. And I just kind of put my name in the hat and here I am. Heck yeah. I mean, if Ruth Ann can do it with six kids, you, you, can, you can do it with six graders, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I've really enjoyed it. You know, the last uh, year has been 
had a lot of challenges, obviously, with COVID. But, you know, the association is so strong because of volunteers, um, not the directors, but people who who do everything else to keep the hobby afloat. So, you know, we have a really good organization. We do. And I would certainly um, lump those directors in with those those powerful, influential voices that keep us rolling, uh, even through the toughest times as well. And so thanks for all your dedication. Yeah, thank you. Heck yeah. Yes, yes. So now that you're director, um, I'm sure you're more versed than ever with history. And I know that history is something that is really important to you personally, you know, it's not just rabbit history, but, but history in general, you, you love, you know, looking back at time, maybe that's a nod to your kind of uh, uh, Gettysburg sort of Harrisburg uh, upbringing. Um, You know, me too. I grew up in the the Northeast. I get it. And uh, we just kind of have that ingrained in us. But um, when it comes to uh, rabbit history and ARB history, um, today's podcast is going to be dedicated to, in the end, the master breeder program that's recently launched, but uh, I think we've got to start uh, a little bit farther back in time uh, with our registration system. So you want to uh, share with our guests a little bit of history about what the ARB registration is uh, system is and some of the challenges it's faced over the years and, and where we are today? Sure. Um, and, and like you said, I'm very lucky that we just moved the ARBA office to two and a half hours from my house. So as we were talking about doing this podcast, I was able to get in the car and you know, I, I scoured the periodicals and some of the old yearbooks um, to really find as much as I could on the registration system. And in order to do that, I think we need to even step back prior to ARBA being a club, um, because what really started rabbits in this country was something called the Belgian hare boom. And it was a three-year period when Belgian hares truly became a fad. Everyone wanted them. Everyone had to have them. People were paying top prices for Belgian hares. And over that three-year period, there were literally thousands of Belgian hares imported from England primarily and some other European countries to the U.S. And um, and at that time, there were some specialty clubs and clubs devoted to different breeds, some Angoras, Dutch, English Lops, but Belgian hares really were at the forefront of promoting uh, rabbits, rabbit shows. And I, I, the earliest thing I can find is from a 1900 rabbit manual um, from the National uh, Belgian Hare Club. And this is just a theory of mine, um, but it talks about having a registration system. Because one thing you have to keep in mind is that when rabbits um, were being sold at the turn of the century, um, there's actually some parallels to today we could draw, is that they were being sold um, sight unseen, um, often shipped via you know freight on a train, and people were paying tons of money for Belgian hares and had never touched the animal. And I, I was kind of laughing. I was, I was thinking of this is that today, you know, in 2021, how many breeders are buying rabbits off of the internet um, without ever putting their hands on them? They maybe they'll pay a transport, you know, to to get their animal. And I've heard time and time again, you know, that animal looks so good in the pictures, but it's not what I thought it was or something like that. And I think there's some parallels we could draw. Um, At the turn of the century and even prior um, in the 1800s, rabbits were really a a secondary thought um, at shows. They were often lumped in with poultry. Um, Several several periodicals I read actually talked about poultry judges were the ones judging um, the rabbits at these competitions. And if you know anything about poultry judging, they use a, a show stick to kind of poke at 
poke at the chickens to get them to show off and um and that's exactly what judges were doing with rabbits is they take their show stick they kind of poke at the rabbit in the cage never get it out never handle it place it and uh and that was kind of that and uh, a lot of reports talked about snuffles being a huge issue disease was rampant um animals that were inferior that didn't meet a standard were being placed because we didn't really have a system of, of judging in place. And uh, in this uh, Belgian hair article, I just wanted to read, and I just think it's so cool. And I wish I could, I'm going to keep searching. I'm going to try to prove this theory of mine that maybe our registration system was somewhat um, developed out, out of the national Belgian hair. It says, um, and I'm quoting here, it says, properly managed registration would require sworn affidavits, and the application sets forth exact dates of birth, and by whom specimens was bred, and by whom the sire and dam for generations back were bred, and the date of birth for those or for these same ancestors. It says a complete system with rigid requirements from breeders is the only safeguard against imposition, downright fraud, the deterioration of stock, registration artfully designed, uh, accurately compiled, and religiously enforced affords an unerring guide to the progressive breeder. And to me, when I read that, I thought, wow, that sounds so much like the system that we have in place today. Um, and if, if we jump forward a little bit, if we jump to 1910, 1911, that, that's the year our association was founded, the um, National Headstock Association, as it was called at the time. Um, in the very, one of the first things, one of the first um, articles I could find from 1910, it talks about the matter of registration and the establishment of a championship has now become a matter of demanding action and a registry system will be maintained on the present rules by the secretary. And uh, really from the very forefront of our association, the the founding fathers knew that we needed a, a system that would kind of guarantee quality. Because what is the registration system for? It's a safeguard to say someone, um, a professional, you know, a registrar, a professional, a judge, has looked at this animal and deemed it uh, of quality. That it meets the standard. It meets the weight requirement. That most importantly at the time, one thing they were trying to get rid of were snuffles. That is a healthy animal. Uh, and that you're buying, and then it has a full pedigree, obviously. Um, and so our forefathers of the association knew um, that that was needed to guarantee our stock. And that was in 1910. And I think that's a good point. I don't think that we're much different from that today. I mean, registrars today have to sign that application, correct? Absolutely. And, and you really are. You're signing a contract. Uh, and that's, if I could give advice to registrars or even people who are registering the rabbits, you, you have to be honest and truthful. And in all the, the periodicals I've read, it talks about um, honesty, because you have, you have to let that registrar deem the animal of quality. Um, one of um, instructions to registrars and judges from 1920. It says to register inferior stocks hurts not only the owner of the rabbit, but the whole registration system and the rabbit industry as well. Um, it talks about how registrars are meant to educate, and you know, registrars. There, um, 
on the way to becoming judges, most of them, right? They're studying for their judge's license. They're educating themselves. But at the time, they also kind of have a job to educate others, to kind of point out the flaws, maybe, or point out the, the good qualities of the rabbit that they're registering. Um, and, that's, and that's part of being a registrar is, is to educate. And we don't often think about that, but that's, I've never thought about it that way, but that's a great point. I mean, I was lumping in as a prerequisite, like you said, to become a judge, but the registrar's role is really important. And, and it maybe is that first um, time where they have kind of the license or the authority to, to, you know, give some objective or subjective comments and to then affirm that what they're looking at is quality and meets the standard and that the animal before them is to their best of their, their honesty, that it's, that it's good to be put in that registration system, which as you pointed out, our forefathers really thoughtfully uh, designed. Yeah. So in my mind, like you said, the registrar has the authority to make constructive criticisms on the rabbit in front of them, because even on a registration blank, there are there's a place for registrars to write comments, whether it's um, something that they think is you know, extraordinary about the animal, um, ear lengths, wool length, anything that they can put in that spot to uh, and to have that conversation with the, the breeder as they're having that rabbit right in front of them and they're going through the evaluation, they really can take that time to, to, help, um, to help breeders. I think when I was registering a lot of rabbits, I, I rarely filled out that, that, that remarks column. I'm feeling a little guilty right now um, for it because of you know, how you just outlined it. Would you encourage registrars today to, to make some marks? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I would say yes, because the, the purpose of a, the registration is to say that the registrar uh, deems this animal to be worthy of um, being placed in our in our system. And and then I would ask why? Why does that rabbit why does that rabbit belong in our system? What what makes it of sound quality? Maybe they could write a few comments um, like you know about that. Right. I mean, just beyond the bare minimum of, of meeting the standard weight or being a recognized variety or, you know, that that there is something more to that, that animal, I think. And I think breeders appreciate that. I, I think so. And I don't know about you, but when I was a youth and I, and I was thinking about when I was going to buy rabbits, we'll say from Ben Hagen, um, one of my mentors, the, the first pedigree I ever got, I don't know how old I was, um, you know, maybe eight, nine years old. And he... He gave me this handwritten pedigree, and on it, he had registration numbers and grand champion numbers, and he had them highlighted. And to a new breeder, I, I think that that really does um, speak volume to say, wow, this rabbit is of quality. And to think about when, when you're in that, when you're like a little kid, you're wide-eyed, and you're so excited, and, and he took the time to, to sit there and highlight with pride, those rabbits that, that meant a lot to him and that, that well, it is prideful, right. I think it's an accomplished. I mean, if you think about, uh, and I still like it, I still register, um, and grand my rabbits and I, I love opening the mail and getting a grand champion certificate. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I mean, I've got your Snapchats. You're like, I hey, look at, look at this. I'm almost here with this one. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I have track as well. And, and I, you know, this is one thing I was thinking of, can I play a little game with you? Go for it. Okay, so uh, one thing I teach to my sixth graders is the connotation of words, how words make us feel. Um, and I was just thinking, I try to make a list of words and, and think about how each of these make you feel maybe differently. If I said, I have a rabbit for sale, I have a pedigreed rabbit for sale, I have a registered rabbit for sale, or I have a grand champion rabbit for sale, you know, do they make, they're all rabbits. At the end of the day, they're all just a rabbit. But 
do those words make you feel different things? Heck yeah, I could I could like kind of feel myself tense up as you got better and better with those with that lineup. Right, and, and I think it's an accomplishment. Um, yeah, that that breeders I I really um, think that breeders need to to take pride in their stock, and and that's what the registration system does. It really gives that assurance that this rabbit is of quality. You know, and um, there was actually a time. So going back to kind of the history of the the registration system, and and I'll tell you, this is not history that's ever been written down before. I I flipped through pages and pages and pages, and I went onto online databases, and it, nowhere can I find it. So if any of your listeners have history of the registration department, send it my way because I'm piecing it together, um, kind of as we're talking about it, and. It, to my best knowledge, 1915 is probably the year that the registration system really um, got started. There were it was there was kind of written down rules for it, and in a 1916 um, standard or yearbook, they talk about there being plenty of good registered stock. So my guess is it kind of started around 1915. Um, prior to that, uh, like I said, there were there were different associations that would keep a registry. Um, a lot of times people would send their pedigrees into kennel clubs, actually. I, I saw note of that a couple times, but because their primary focus uh, were on dogs, when people would go back to request their pedigrees, they would have been lost or incorrect and, and things like that. That's very cool. And to think that um, back in those days, I mean, just to think that they had that forethought, but I love what you said earlier about um, you continually bumped into, you know, pastorella in those old documents, that that was an early problem with these show rabbits. And one of the ways to safeguard that was to guarantee good health. And of course, today, our registration system is based off of first and foremost, good health. Absolutely. Such cool stuff. So yeah, what and, happens uh, to that after 1915? So it, it evolves, um, and, and one thing I have to note is that it, it was $1 to register your rabbit uh, for many, many years, um, $1. So I, and, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, $1, it was so cheap uh, to register. So I thought, well, how cheap was it? So I went to an inflation calculator because today to register your rabbit, it's only uh, $6, right? Right. And so what do you think that $1 would equal today, Alan? Gosh, I don't know. I would – Ten dollars, twenty-seven dollars. Oh my God! I, Which, yeah, crazy. twenty-seven dollars. People were um, paying to to register their stock, and and we're talking about thousands. Once um, once the the system got kicked off, there were thousands of animals registered. I think in nineteen twenty alone, there was almost three thousand animals registered. Incredible. Yeah, and um, I have to pull up my notes somewhere here, but. Uh, only a few years later, they they hit the ten thousand mark. Wow! Yeah, in in one year to register ten thousand rabbits in one year, and that's very close to kind of where we're at today. And that's a lot, considering. I mean, we didn't start tracking conventions until the middle part of the the twentieth century. But um, you know, back in those days, those conventions, like in the seventies, they had five thousand rabbits. But to think about the number of rabbits registered per year annually compared to what was shown at a convention was massively bigger. Now it's it's flipped, right? Absolutely. And there were so far fewer breeds. Think how many ah, breeds good point. in 1915, 1920. Exactly. Just a handful. 
a handful, absolutely. And and Belgian hares probably being, you know, as you said, the 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 boom breed uh, back in the beginning. So they were probably a primarily one of the bigger breeds being registered. A contrast to today. They they, they were uh, they did fall off some, but they definitely were. I think the other breed. Um, let me see. I kind of have a, a Flemish. Um, were quite popular. It looks like New Zealand's were quite popular. And uh, we have a registration contest today. If you go into the DR, you can kind of see which registrars have registered the most rabbits. And in the early days, and I don't have an exact date when it starts, they actually broke the registration contest down into breeds, which I thought was kind of a neat idea. Totally cool. Yeah. And then did they give a winner per year um, with that contest? Yep. Yep. So there would be a wow. winner. And I, I honestly, I mean, I don't know if it was per breed or overall, but I, I did think that was kind of neat. It, and it was broken down a little differently. There was actually a class system to registrations. And my plan is to write a little article for the DR because, I mean, it's just too complicated. I don't even know if I fully understand it enough to talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> but there are four classes. You could register your rabbit um, in class A, B, C, or D. And each of those classes meant something a little bit different. And Super um, interesting. Yeah, they, they did away with that for a little, you know, a while. By the way, I hope you go forward with that article because, as you said, it's not written down in one summary somewhere. So guess what? It's 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 Johnny's job now. Yeah. Oh, uh, let me tell you, uh, if you could see my kitchen table right now, I have <laughs> a chunk of it typed up, but it is just uh, papers and I and I sorted them by, by year. Um, and there are things that change later. Like I haven't found when the, even when the price of registrations went up because in 1943 it was still one dollar wow yeah and the, the champion program um was first kind of laid out in 1919 um but very different than we have today um although they did say that you need to uh each winning rabbit or that each rabbit winning its first point or points shall be named and shall be registered by the judge um before it's taken from the showroom, if not previously named or registered. And then they said that, um, now somewhere there's a rule about it. There has to be five rabbits. And oh, here it is. A champion must have won at least 10 points under three different judges and at least three um, different shows. So that's the same as today, except for the point system. I wonder when, when that went away. Yeah. And I don't that's... know when like started, to be honest. Um, there are old legs in the library from the 1950s, but I haven't found anywhere in these old periodicals that mention legs being sent out. I think a lot of wins were actually sent to the ARBA office. Wow. And nowhere in there did you see that you know seniors had to be registered to show, correct? That was never a prerequisite from what you found to, to just simply exhibit at a show? Um, no. I, I, I can't say that I have seen that. There has been different, so many different rules come and go. Um, interestingly, uh, in 19, uh, let's see, is it 1928 here? And and I know I'm getting a little off topic, but this is this was really interesting to me is that uh, it says after January 1st of 1929. No rabbit will be entitled to registration in this association where uh, the sire is not registered. And after January 1st of 1930, no rabbit shall be registered unless both the sire and dam are registered. Um, so what did you think about that? I mean, I mean, I show livestock too, and that's, it's really similar. So if you don't have 
registered parents and you're showing actually angora goats right but uh, if, if the parents aren't registered you are in colored angora goats you, you have to you're subjected then to a um you know an inspection by a panel of inspectors um so that's not unlikely but it's really hard to think about that requirement in rabbits right so they they only kept that requirement in for one year and it was actually already dropped from the 1930 yearbook um and one of the reasons is just due to our marked breeds that the you know dutch and english spot it people breed from sports and not all of their um, sires and dams make show rabbits and so that is a uh, probably fortunately something that did not stick around yeah totally or today when so many people are working on new varieties of breeds and they're in their show programs those rabbits are, in, are part of the programs of, of rabbits that are being shown and they're you know producing rabbits that are of recognized varieties um today that, that would that would prevent um or cause a lot more work for people with CODs yeah same with uh, all those mark breeds so um continuing on with the history it's super fascinating uh, where does it go from from there so um the the system kind of evolves and they do mention red white and blue uh pedigrees which uh, for anyone new, uh, a red uh, registration is when both parents are registered. A red and white seal uh, signifies that both the parents and grandparents have all been registered. And a red, white, and blue seal of merit um, says that all the rabbits on the pedigree are registered. And um, that kind of pops in and out, but it's first really shown the seals in 1954, um, which is a little later. Than I than I actually thought because I've heard him talk about a red, white, and blue pedigree before, but they never showed the seal uh, un, until then. And those seals only had to do with rabbits registered on a pedigree, not grand champions, correct? That's correct. And I don't know. So now we have a, a, the gold star pedigree, and this is all stuff. Um, I was really looking for the early years of registrations when when I was digging. So I'm going to have to go back and kind of look at the later years. Um, probably from the 50s to, to present, because in somewhere in there, they added a the gold star um, registration, which is when every rabbit on the, the registration is a grand champion. Um, obviously, the grand champion system changed um, several times over the next several years. Um, but yeah. I might be That's wrong, but I think the gold star is actually a rather new advent, because I remember when those used to, uh, those started to be published in the DR, and it was the DR that we know today. So I, I think that which is a, 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 a an excellent advent. I mean, you think about Grand Champions; it's so much harder than you know obtaining a, a registration. Um, I think it's actually rather new, but it'd be really interesting to, to find out exactly where it fell and and some of the uh, premises behind it. I guess we'll yeah, record so the that, article. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the the history that I have is that um, the reg, the registration program, just kind of to summarize, was made to. Um, eliminate snuffles was made to ensure quality for people who were purchasing their animals um, to be a, a kind of an apprentice judge in a way. Um, and yeah, and I, it's very similar to how it is today. Yeah, Readers so who read cool. the can, uh, can kind of be assured the same things. Yeah. And it's, as you said, the similarities between how rabbits were bought and sold in our early days are not too different from the way things are done now I in an online version. How many times do you hear people buying animals on the, the internet with never touching them? Yeah, all the time. And, I mean, right, all the time. Yeah. 
but if they had that document, that would help maybe put them at a little more peace of mind, correct? Yeah. Yes, and I and I think it's a pride for the breeder as well to say that I have a registered herd. Yeah, because like like, like you did when you were kids. Yes, absolutely. Um, think about anyone who's listening. You can think about maybe the first time you bought a rabbit and you looked at the pedigree and you saw that grand champion number, the registration number, and and you know what did it mean to you? You probably thought that that was a really quality animal. Oh heck yeah! I used to haul my pedigrees to every single show in a binder, it, yeah. right? With pride, yeah. Study them, absolutely. Heck yeah! So, um, where are we today with the registration system? Um, obviously, a lot of the the format really hasn't changed in terms of what's required. Um, but are people registering the rabbits in the in the you know the proportion that they once were? Um, yes. So one good news is that I. I would say the registration system is very healthy. Uh, we have an office staff. His name is Kevin. Awesome guy. He, his entire job is focused around the registration system. So he imports the pedigrees. He sends out the, you know, the certificates. Um, and he has to contact people when registrars uh, you know, make an error and, and say, listen, you're missing something, which he says is, is very common. So if I had a, a word of advice to registrars, um, spend a little bit more time. And this is not something new. <laughs> this is something, if you look at periodicals and, and articles and articles written by um, James Blythe, the old secretary, he mentions all the time is that registrars just need to spend a little bit more time um, on the forms and making sure everything is filled out completely. And uh, Kevin showed me a stack uh, folder with a hundred plus uh, pending registrations that people are anxious to get back, but mostly probably on the part of the registrar, there was just some careless error. Maybe it's missing a weight or missing a signature or an address, or um, they put a buck in the dough spot, you know, just simple careless errors that I think if, if we take a little bit more time, um, that that those errors could be avoided. Um, well, and, but, and now we can sto- we can staple pedigrees to the registration application. So the job has become quite a bit less, you know, arduous than it, than it used to be, and leaves less room for error. You would think because you get a, print, a printed pedigree. But maybe do you think that because we can simply just attach the you know printed copy to the application that we maybe don't spend as much time actually looking at that printed copy that the breeder hands us before we staple it and throw it in an envelope and send it to Knox, Pennsylvania? Huh. You know, I didn't think about it, but it, it really, it could be. Um, to me, if I was Kevin, I think I'd rather have a, a computer copy where I'm not trying to interpret someone's handwriting because you remember being a registrar, probably sitting at a show with a clipboard, you know, your hand gets tired by the end of the day. Oh, yeah. Or you dump your ink all over your papers and been there, done that. Yes. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, it, people listening that want to register the rabbits, you can print off a copy of your pedigree. And I'm sure your registrar would thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Thank you. I wish I wish when I was doing it 20 years ago, I wish that advent was there. That's a fairly recent uh, change in the system. And man, that was a good one when it came. Right. So I, I think um, registrations are, are strong today. We I think we should break the, the 10,000 mark. Um, this year, and and I was talking to Kevin in the computer system. So where is where has the registration system gone? Um, Glenn Carr, I believe, in the the mid '80s, early '90s, computerized the registration system. And I, I had Kevin look up how many registrations are in the system currently, and there's 418,000 
registrations in the computer uh, that he has access to, um, you know, that have been built out since the the registration system has been computerized, which I thought that was kind of a cool number. Totally cool. And, and what are some of the reasons why registering your rabbits or keeping a document with the ARB, an official document, what are some incentives for breeders to, to want to do that beyond what we're going to later talk about in this podcast? Well, sure. So in one thing, it's um, a security system. It backs up your pedigree. So you have a computer crash. You don't back up your, you know, your pedigree software. The ARBA has all of that information for you, and it's very easy to get. Um, it gives some value and legitimacy to your pedigrees and to your herd. Um, you know, there's been many times Eric and I had a conversation say, you know, they contact the office and say, I lost all my pedigrees. I don't know what to do. And fortunately for the registration system, you know, we can get your pedigrees back to you. Um, in the early days and even today, it, it kind of gives you um, peace of mind knowing that your pedigrees can't be copied. Uh, illegitimately you know if someone tries to falsify your name on a on a pedigree um you have the registration blank saying listen this animal was belonged to me it's owned by me i have the the paper i signed to prove that um so you yeah know, those are great points and, and what about totally your protection whether it's you know in some sort of theft or or whether you've lost your pedigrees i mean i remember being a kid toting my binder around and going well gosh if i left my binder somewhere would it ever get back to me you know and i we got a lot of shows here where binders are still left at the end of the day and thankfully most of us are are, are we know how valuable that binder is but if those are the only documents that they're bought rabbits and they're not even in your system yet like there's no That's way right. to retrace that somehow except if you had them registered That's right. So. And it's a you know it's an incentive to to help the ARBA to to help you. So I, yeah. I don't I just everyone to to register the rabbits. And imagine if if every rabbit on a pedigree was registered, there could be some tracing that could be done if you were really interested in you know your line over time. I mean a lot of us stick around in this thing for a lifetime. Um, with that registration in the system, that's traceable. You could go back and say like, oh gosh, how related to this doe is that buck? You know, was it related to my convention winner from, you know, 1975? You know, in this regard, you could, right? cool to think about if, you know, if you're in this hobby for 20, 30 plus years and you registered your stock, you could trace it all the way back. And Eric and I had a little conversation. You really have to be uh, diligent about registering your stock or else, you know, you break that, you break the... Uh, the lineage at some point. So, and, and that's what happened over time is that it's hard to trace one rabbit back, you know, decades because at some point someone didn't register one rabbit and it kind of broke the system. But um, you absolutely could trace a one rabbit, especially some of these new breeds. Um, you know, you have a breed that just came about, the dwarf papillon. How cool would it be if, uh, you know, the first year they're accepted, people start registering their animals and then. 50 years from now, if people stuck with it, they could trace them back to you and say, wow, I remember, uh, you know, when Alan Messick had, had this Papillon and it won because you can write the awards on the registration certificate and it won first place at the West Coast Classic in 2021 and now it's 2091, you know what I mean? So right. it, it's a cool thought. And uh, especially in a day and age where we don't write stuff down like we used to, I mean, you're looking at this, uh, you know, tracking the the history of the registration system, but face it, our generation doesn't 
document history like we used to. And even within our own rabbits, I mean, I have to admit that I always talk about goats, but when I go back to like figure out like, oh, what did I do in 2008? I have to go back to Facebook, go back to an album of some goat show in Oregon and, and figure out exactly what I did. But in in this regard, those registrations are forever with the association. So um, tracking those kind of things, you know, it's, 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 and it can be instantaneous. it's all, it's all computerized. So if you, you're at, um, maybe you're on the road and you realize, oh, I forgot this pedigree or something. Um, you could probably email Kevin if it's a, during the work hours and he could probably shoot you um, a replacement or a copy or, you know, a picture or something. So, so what advice yeah. would you give to breeders today that have been around for a long time that maybe registered their rabbits in the beginning, but didn't for five, 10, 15, 20 years, you know, I'm raising my hand here. Um, <laughs> how would, I know, right. Sorry. Um, you know, what, what advice would you give to those breeders, those veterans that just haven't done it in a long time uh, to, to start doing it again? Right. And so that's one reason I thought the, so we can move to the master breeder program that I think the master breeder program uh, adds a little more value or some weight to maybe these veteran breeders who maybe register rabbits at the beginning, but over time they got a little laissez-faire and they stopped registering their rabbits. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that this program that we're going to talk about, the ARBA Master Breeder Program, helps give a little bit of value uh, to some of these old timers that have been around and say, you know, maybe I should register my rabbit because I have something to work towards now and I have different levels I can accomplish and my name's going to be printed in the in the ARBA um, member handbook, uh, for everyone to see, because it, it is absolutely an accomplishment to, you know, to win at your local show. But I don't know if that is that written down forever. I, you know, if you win best in show at the Pennsylvania State Convention, that's a huge honor. But eventually, that's going to get lost. However, if you accomplish one of these ranks with the ARBA, say you become a master exhibitor or a master breeder. That's something that's going to be documented in our and archived in our um, member handbook or, or yearbook uh, for generations to come. That's so cool. All right. So we're going to actually uh, split this interview into two sections because we've talked about the registration system at length. And um, we're going to dive in next week's podcast episode to talking about the what we've uh, this new advent, which is the Master Breeder Program. And Johnny, you're one of the original authors behind it and 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 staunch proponents for it. So uh, join us again, everyone, next week for episode uh, 24 when we dive into the Master Breeder Program and talk about why what Johnny just outlined is so important to gaining that status. So come back with us next week for that portion. Again, Johnny, thanks for joining us and we'll chat with you next week. Thank you, Alan. Alan, what a great interview. It was so interesting to hear Johnny talk about some of these things that he's been working on for so long. Yeah, it's he's done so much, and he like us grew up in the ARBA in this industry, and uh, he's a, he's a devotee, as I like to say, um, and he's given back so much. And the the things that he's come up with and revolutionized are going to be, I think, long long felt. Um, and tune in next week. We're going to actually have the second half of Johnny's interview where he talks about the Master Breeder Program in the ARBA, which uh, we are all very excited about now that shows are getting back to to gear and convention coming up and we can all work really hard towards getting those registrations and grand champions to achieve that goal. So tune in for episode 24 with Johnny uh, part two.
I think that'll be really interesting. I keep seeing people post their certificates on Facebook. Um, you know, there are people who have participated in the system, people who just have never seen the value in it. But it's interesting to see people, you know, get excited about that. Um, I know I tend to register in Grand Mine. I, I register the ones that Grand. Um, I do register my own, but I only register the ones that have legs from other judges. Um, so I was able to get my master exhibitor. I'm pretty close to that master breeder. Um, I, I need to show some more rabbits, but, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to see this spur some interest in that program. Totally. Well, congratulations on master exhibitor. That's, that's quite the feat as, uh, as Johnny will outline next week. It's, it takes, it takes some years, first of all, five years to pull it off. And then a lot of, a lot of work and dedication in between. And, you know, with the, the year and a half, almost two years that we've had kind of off from, rabbits it's almost like a new dawn so it's it's a new it's a new way to re-energize things and and to come back into the rabbit and kv um industry and and what we do and love so much um and and take on this new challenge yeah i agree i'm excited to see how um, people take this and run with it over the next few years me too so our education portion for today um, actually comes from the same DR, Dr. Jay Harais, who is another um, former youth breeder from the state of Pennsylvania, wrote an article called Deciphering Terminology Used in Rabbit and Cavey Medicine. And I thought this was really interesting and something that's very accessible probably to all of us. Um, he talks a little bit about medications. So we'll go through. Um, first, he talks about weight. And it talks about how when you're um, treating an animal or you're figuring out a dosage, that's almost always in kilograms. And he gives us the formula um, to calculate um, pounds to kilograms, which um, kilograms equals a weight in pounds divided by 2.2. Then talks about dosage. Um, the units used to express dosages include milligrams, milliliters, which are the same as cubic centimeters or cc's or international units. These are all from the metric system. Um, and it gives some good advice about some of these prefixes. Um, so we can make sure that we're giving animals the correct amount. Um, he says, administering kilograms instead of grams may render your animal with a toxicity. Um, so it talks about calculating a dose. It says a formulary will supply the breeder with a conversion factor to use along with the animal's weight. The most common way you'll see this presented is in the form milligrams per kilogram or milligrams per pound. So when you're looking at perhaps a label, um, that's how you calculate how much this animal is supposed to get. Um, so you take the weight in pounds, which most of our scales are calibrated to, convert that to kilograms, and then calculate the total milligrams that that rabbit would need. It talks about the concentration of the drug. Um, and this is something that can be a little confusing. Um, it says it's Commonly found on the side of the drug's container, it's frequently expressed in milligrams per milliliter or milligrams per gram, and the, but the sum like ivermectin are expressed as concentrations such as 1%. He says this implies that there are 10 milligrams of ivermectin per 1 milliliter of drug or a 10 milligram to milliliter concentration. Um, a 10% would inc would equate to 100 milligrams per milliliter. So that's a nice thing maybe to note if this is a drug that you use and, you know, maybe put that on a sticker on the side of your bottle or something like that. That's such great advice. And I know from reading a lot of labels over the years, whether I'm, uh, you know, treating rabbits, which there are no drugs <laughs> specific <laughs> to rabbits, so we're always doing those conversions. But when you see that milligram um dosage you're like wait what is that that and that does not equate to one cc and there's quite a bit of difference between one milligram and one cc or one one milliliter 
Right, right. And then, of course, the milligrams within that milliliter. And, you know, even if you go to like a dosage calculator online or something like that, it doesn't calculate from that formula percentage. Um, so again, this would be a good note, like I said, to, to put somewhere. Um, it talks about the route of administration, which is very important. This is how you take that drug. And this is something that's also noted sometimes on containers or in prescriptions. PO is per oz or orally, um, which is, you know, in the mouth, dosing, syringe, capsule, tablet, um, whatever that is, this drug is administered um, orally. IV is intravenously. There's not a whole lot of things that you're going to put um, in a rabbit intravenously at home. Um, but if you do, you could use veins in the front leg, the hind leg, or the ear. That's um, commonly used, again, in the rare times when you do need to inter uh, administer something intravenously to a rabbit. Subcutaneously is under the skin, most commonly on top of the neck and the scruff area where it's a little bit thinner um, and a little bit looser. You're especially looking for thinner skin if you've got old Dutch bucks. Those things have hides on them. <laughs> um, I have a, a couple of times over the years picked up, you know, a little vent disease. And when we do that, I treat the entire herd. I don't care where they've been. I treat everybody. And That's a great idea. Breaking needles on old Dutch bucks is not fun. <laughs> Uh, yeah, when I use penicillin, I draw it up with a 20 and inject with a 22. Um, and then IM is intermuscular, which is most commonly used on the muscles in the back or the hind leg muscles. That's where you have that greater concentration of muscle on a rabbit, of course, the loin and the hindquarters. Then it talks about frequency and duration of administering a drug. So there are some abbreviations here that are commonly used. Um, there's the um, kind of the how many times a day. So SID would be once a day or like a single administration. BID would be twice a day. You know, that's like by like bicycle. Um, TID three times a day, T triple. And then there's a notation after that. Um, so like Q24H would be 24 hours apart. Q12H would be 12 hours apart. Q8H is eight hours apart. So this is... Um, this is kind of how you can read some of those dosages or prescriptions if you're looking to um, give some medicine to your animals. And of course, we will um, let you know here that if you have any questions, it is always best to consult a veterinarian about correct dosage for your rabbits. It sure is. And we're really lucky that we have some wonderful veterinarians in the ARBA that are longstanding and dedicated, like, of course, Dr. Jay Harais and uh, Dr. Heihau, our president, and Dr. Mina in Hawaii. Yes, um, but that will help you at least maybe interpret some of these if you wrote it down a while ago and forgot about it. Um, but yes, always go to a good source. But this this information is very helpful in that interpretation. That article needs to be posted on, on a lot of rabbitries, including my own. That's such a great resource. And we're so lucky to have Jay and all of his his knowledge. And gosh, think back 2009, that's when it was published. That's something that we can use uh, to this day and uh, should be widespread. So if, if you don't have that copy and you were a member back in 09, you know, dig out that that uh, uh, January. Was it January or December, Jan December January or January, January February. February 2009. Yeah, great January. art or great issue of the DR. Yeah, dig that out and... Uh, take a copy of that article. So thanks, Jay. And thanks, Bryony, for sharing that. 
Well, I think that gets us to the end of uh, episode 23 uh, of our Best in Show podcast. And again, we want to thank Johnny Hausner, our ARBA District 9 director from Pennsylvania, for joining us and talking about the history of the ARBA registration system. And that is kind of a precursor to what Johnny's going to dive into in episode 24, which is the uh, new advent to the ARBA. That's our master uh, breeder program. And uh, it's a very exciting uh, new thing for us. And Brian, it sounds like you've already got a head start on it with your master exhibitor status and you're well on your way to earning your master breeder uh, status. So with that, I'm going to end with a quote that uh, kind of gives a special nod to history. And it says something like this, more and more, I tend to read history. I often to find it more up to date than the daily newspapers. And that was by Joe Murray. So uh, speaking of Oren earlier and how he uh, lived and and worked and kept up to date for over a hundred years, uh, in not only his lifetime but across our industry, and um, and then to hear some of the history with the ARB registration system and how it's actually not too far, uh, not too different than it that it once was, and the premise for having it um, is actually really relatable to where we are today. So, Brian, yes, how do is. we how do we end every episode? Talk rabbits and talk cavies. See everyone next week. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.